0: My message this morning is entitled, Stumbling Over Jesus. That's what Israel did. They they stumbled over Jesus. They were like the archaeologists, right? Looking looking, and looking and looking, and they didn't quite find it. The shepherds found it. Well, to catch the context, I want to read from verse 30. What shall we say then, Paul says, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. There's a giant contrast in this text. A contrast between two peoples. You've got the Gentiles you've got the Israelites. The Gentiles, we looked at last week, were not in large part seeking the Lord. They're kind of like, like these shepherds, not seeking the Lord, but they found Him. They found righteousness. But the Jews, on the other hand, were, were really seeking the Lord. They were pursuing after righteousness, but they didn't find it. Last week, we, we looked at verse 30 about the Gentiles stumbling upon righteousness and and these like these Bedouin teenagers not looking for biblical scrolls, just throwing rocks into caves and and they find the greatest archaeological find that's ever been unearthed in Israel. And this week, we're going to look at Israel stumbling over Jesus. These were verse 30, pursuing a law that would lead to righteousness rather than trusting in Jesus. And so these are like the the archaeologists who are digging all over the place, trying to find the the best thing, and uh, looking all over the place, searching for treasure, and they found a lot of things. They found a lot of good things. They found a lot of amazing things, but they didn't find the big one. Now, all, all, all illustrations break down, but just imagine if the scholarly world would reject the Dead Sea Scrolls. They don't, but imagine if they did. That would be the imagery of our text this morning. That uh, Because they didn't find it. They, and these others, they don't want anything to do with it. And that's what we see. We see the Jews stumbling over Jesus, not wanting anything to do with him. Well, in verse 31, we read that Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. The Jews were all about the law. I mean, as children, they memorized the law. As adults, they tried their hardest to live the law. They offered sacrifices according to the law. They, they celebrated the feasts according to the law. They fasted according to the law. They dieted according to the law. But not dieted lose weight, but they, they ate the foods that were to be eaten and they stayed away from the foods that weren't to be eaten. So much so that even Peter, in his old age, when, when the, the sheep came down from heaven and commanded him to eat pork, he said, no way, I've never eaten pork before. Like, like his whole life, I mean, they, they kept the diets. Their clothes they wore were dictated by the law. They cared for the poor in accordance with the law. They, uh, they gave their income to the temple and to the Levites in accordance with the law. Every Saturday they rested according to Sabbath regulations. If they didn't, they'd be in trouble. The Pharisees would come and get them the Sabbath police. Woo, 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 Sabbath police. Maybe get a ticket for walking too far. Every Sabbath they'd meet in a synagogue, perhaps similar to this a little bit, where the law would be read, where the teaching would come from the law, where catechism would take place. Where fellowship and community would take place and their whole life and culture focused around the law. And so when Jesus was speaking to the rich young ruler and uh, asking about what commandments he should keep to gain eternal life. The rich young ruler says all these commandments I've kept from my youth, basically the Ten Commandments, I've kept those from my youth. When Paul commented upon his own life regarding the righteousness according to the law, he said that he was blameless in other words, you couldn't take Paul's life, match up anything according to the law, and say, nope, Paul, you didn't do that one, you didn't do that one, you didn't do that one. Now, that's all externals, of course. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, tried to keep the law. Experts in the law, these leaders were. And they were so meticulous about keeping every single commandment that Jesus said in Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three, that they gave a tithe from their mint and their dill and the cumin. That is the, the smallest of spices that you could just hold. They, they would take a tenth of that and, and, and give it to the, the temple and a tenth of that for the festivals. And they give another third every third year for the um, for the feast, for the, the tithe that they had commanded. It just kind of shows you the the specific detail that they had in keeping the law. And what they kept with their spices was just indicative of how meticulous they had kept everything. And there's a reason why they were so meticulous. is because they were seeking righteousness. Verse 31, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. And they believed then that this righteousness would lead to eternal life. As Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. The Jews thought they could gain eternal life through obedience to the Scriptures. Yet it ended in vain. Look at verse 31. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. They failed. They tried, but they failed. And uh, I just tell you, if anyone could have succeeded in keeping the law, it was the Pharisees. They had zeal. They had resolve they had determination nothing in their culture was stopping them from that everything around them was there in fact even if you look at chapter 10 and verse 2 which we'll look at next time i bear them witness that they have a, a zeal for god right? a passion for god it was it was this whole culture if anyone could keep and succeed in in, in keeping the law it would have been the pharisees based on mere effort and willpower alone You say, well, why did they fail? Well, glad you asked because Paul answers in verse 32. He says, why? Why didn't they succeed in reaching the law? Well, here's the explanation of what Paul gives. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They didn't pursue the law on faith. They did it based on works. In other words, it was more external rather than internal. And that's what Jesus really addressed at, was the, the issue of the heart is really the, the big issue. When Sermon on the Mount, you read the, the, the things you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he goes deep into the heart. But externally is where they were, were trying to do it based upon the works of the law. And I just say this, right? How many today believe this? That getting to heaven is about the things you do. Right? You, you talk to every, anybody, right, on, on the street. How, how do you get to heaven? What do they say? I just be good enough. And if I'm just good enough, then I'm I'm okay. I'll get to heaven. God will God likes me. I mean I'm a pretty likeable guy. God will like me. It's as long as you're good enough. In fact, that's what uh, Islam teaches. That's what Buddhism teaches. That's what Confucianism teaches. That's what all the world religions, religions teach, basically, you you become good enough, and and depending whether maybe you enter nirvana or maybe you enter some glorified state, or if there's a monotheist, you stand before God, or whether it's deism, you stand before God, and He's going to look at your life, and say, yeah, you're a pretty good guy. Why don't you come into my kingdom? It's pretty much how every religion is, except for Christianity. Right? It's either human achievement. Christianity says it's divine accomplishment that we will see because it's based on. Faith, but the Jews thought that righteousness could come by law keeping alone. And what they failed to see is what Paul said in Romans chapter three and verse 20, where he says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul says this, you work, you work and no human flesh is going to be justified by the works of a law. Because the law is another purpose. It leads us to the knowledge of sin. It, it instructs us in the way that we should walk for sure. But in doing so, saying this is the way you should walk. It shows us that we don't walk that way. It shows us we need something else. It shows us that we need something more. We need Jesus. And this is how the law prophesies. Jesus talked about the law prophesying until the days of John. Just, just prophesying of this perfect person. That we could never be, we need help, this is the gospel. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves, Romans eight, three and four. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. <laughs> there's it, right We are weak in our flesh, we cannot do what the law would have us to do, and He did this, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of a law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And there it is, right? We can't do it, but God did in sending Jesus. And sadly, though, when the Jews heard this message, in great part, they rejected it. They said, That's not, that's not, not true. Or to use Paul's terminology of verse 32, it says that they stumbled. They have stumbled, verse 32 says, over the stumbling stone. And time after time, you see this in the New Testament, right? Paul comes into a city, and his evangelistic ministry was twofold, okay? Bold, Jew first, and then to the Greek. So maybe that's three. But bold, go to the Jews, and when they reject it, go to the Greek. And every city comes. He visits the synagogue and preaches the message of salvation, faith in Jesus Christ, and the Jews reject it. And they spit out, and so Paul turns to the Gentiles. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. They always went to the Jew first, and it was Paul's custom to do that. And only when they rejected it, they go to the Gentiles. We saw that last week in Sidney and Antioch. Remember, he, he preached to the Jews, and, and there was such excitement. Remember, the whole city was there then the next week. And then when the Jews saw the crowds, they were envious. And they, they started uh, contradicting the things spoken by Paul. Remember what Paul did? At that point, he turned to the Gentiles and said, God has set you as a light for the nations. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Acts 13, verse 48. But that very same thing happened in Iconium. He went into the synagogue. And the Jews, and mostly from Sidon Antioch, came over, stirred it up, said, don't do this. And so he turned to the Gentiles. Did the same thing in Lystra and Derby. Derbe and Thessalonica, and Berea, and Corinth. And oftentimes it's really even explicit about what happened. You can read about it in the book of Acts of how, how we went. Let's listen to Corinth, Acts 15, verse 5. Paul was testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent, for now on I will go to the Gentiles." And you see that over and over. He's going to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And see, when the Jews heard the message, they stumbled over him. Even though the message was clear and they understood it, you can't be righteous on your own, you need the righteousness of another, Jesus is your Messiah, he's coming, believe and trust in him, they, they rejected it. Like, think even about what, what would play out in the future as Paul arrives in Rome. If you just want to turn back there to the beginning of Romans, just look over the page in Acts chapter 28. Here's what would happen in the future after Paul even wrote this letter. And it was such a pattern that it, it happened again in Rome. So here he is in Rome. He's in house arrest. And there was a day in which all the Jews, they hadn't heard really about so much. And then they would come and listen to him. He says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him in his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening. This is Verse 23. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he had said, but others disbelieved and disagreeing among themselves. They departed after Paul had made one statement. This is what Paul said. He said, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah, the prophet. And this is Isaiah six, when Isaiah had this big summons to go. And proclaim. He said, Go and to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart grows dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So Isaiah is going go and to preach this message that the people would see, but yet their They would see it with their eyes, but they wouldn't understand it. They would hear with their ears, but they wouldn't comprehend it, and they just they would reject it. But God would be glorified because he would be blameless in their judgment, because they heard the message. Therefore, Paul says this: let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, for they will listen. The Jews rejected it. Here they were seeking. Can you imagine the scene when when the day appointed, verse 23, and, and they came in great numbers to talk to Paul? They they were seeking. And and Paul clearly laid out, if Paul was trying to convince anybody, we see how convincing his logic in Romans, we, we see his knowledge of the Old Testament. If anyone is going to convince, is going to be these people coming and seeking for righteousness. And he tells them about Jesus, and some believe some did, but then they disputed. And Paul basically says, You guys are blind. You guys don't know. You don't understand. The Gentiles, I'll go to them, and, and they will hear. When later writing the Corinthians, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 1 23, that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. Indeed, here it is, My the title of my message They were stumbling over Jesus, the Jews were. When it came to be this message about a crucified Savior, they couldn't swallow it, couldn't embrace it. it but this didn't catch God by surprise. That's a point of verse 33 back in Romans 9. It was prophesied in Scripture that they would stumble over the stone who's Jesus. It said, Behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God knew full well the message of salvation when it came that the Jews would stumble. In fact, that's the whole context of Romans 9 through 11. Why is Israel not believing? It, has God's word failed? Chapter 9, verse 6. No, God's word has not failed. Right? It's the, the spiritual line who are are children of God. And he's even prophesied that Jews won't find salvation. They won't receive it even though they're, they're seeking it. Romans 9-11, through 11, sovereignty. It's, uh, the promise of salvation is in God's hands under his control. Their unbelief is no surprise. He knew that they would stumble. Now, this quote, when Paul says that it is written... Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's two verses from the Old Testament sort of sort of put together. Uh, Isaiah 8.14, Isaiah 28.16. And in Isaiah 8.14 comes the, the phraseology, stone of stumbling, rock of offense that many people would stumble upon. And so that, that phrase kind of gets put there under the, the larger context of Isaiah 28.16 that speaks of the, the living stone, of, of laying this stone and, and the hope of deliverance for all who believe. And, and of course, all the uh, audience of the prophets, the message is the same. Right? You, you're going your own way, but you need to repent and find forgiveness. And here the prophet Isaiah is pleading in both contexts the same. Israel, turn for your sin and trust the Lord. Trust the Lord who is your rock, who is your stone. And, and don't stumble upon Him, but believe in that stone. Believe in that rock. But even calling it a stone of stumbling knew that they were going to reject it. And those in Isaiah's day indeed rejected it. They didn't heed the message. Instead, they they trusted themselves. They trusted in their own strength to avoid the judgment of God. And judgment came upon them. And likewise, in Paul's day, many Jews who mocked the the message of God, they stumbled over Jesus. Let's just think about this illustration here for a moment, right? Picture with me. Right? Stumbling. That's what we, we think of when we think about stumbling, right? We, we stumble, oftentimes we think about stumbling over something small, whether that's a, a lip on the sidewalk or, or some little stone or, or maybe even a divot in the ground, something that we didn't see, we're not paying attention, right? We're looking out here and then we stumble on something low. We trip up. Now, that's partially the image here that, that Paul is giving when we're thinking about stumbling. Um, but the rock over which Paul is tripping, is, is a big rock. It's in plain sight. In, in, in Isaiah 8.14, the stone is called a sanctuary. That is a, peop, a place where people can find refuge and can find help. It is steady. It is secure. In fact, that's the, the thrust at the end of verse 33. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. This rock is big enough, strong enough to save and deliver. And, and so here's my, my rough artistic... We just made the rock bigger. Could have made it a lot bigger. But somehow stumbling, it's like stumbling not, not on something on the ground, but but stumbling like over this pulpit. Like, whoa, clearly right there in plain sight of all, yet, yet stumbling over it. And that's the irony. It is, it is so clear to Israel. It is so clear that of what it is they're stumbling over. In fact, um, it says in the future, they look on him whom they have pierced. And will mourn when God opens their eyes, it's going to be as clear as day what they are doing. But in this text, on the one hand, you have the Gentiles not looking for Jesus, finding this rock, finding this big rock, and yet the Jews who have this thing clearly in the road, and they're tripping over this waist-high rock or whatever, fifty feet high sort of rock. It's kind of there's the imagery. This rock is so big, but it's in God's plan that the Jews aren't believing. They're tripping over the salvation stone. God knew it was going to happen. That's why I called this a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus knew that it would happen. In three of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus shares this story. I'll just read it from Matthew's account. Matthew 21, beginning of verse 33. There is a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went off to another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to give fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to him. That is, they would have beaten one and and, uh, killed another and stoned another. And and then finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what do you think he's going to do to these tenants? And they said to him, caught up in this story, they said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give them the fruit to their seasons. It's like, bingo, exactly right. It says, have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes there's the cornerstone that was rejected. Now, we don't know exactly what the cornerstone is, right? This is a pyramid. But the cornerstone is the chief stone, the stone that that aligns everything else upon which everything hinges. It is the the most important stone of the building upon which everything holds together. And and Jesus said when he, He had said that they rejected the cornerstone, He says, Therefore I tell you, Jewish people, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, picture this picture, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I guess I should have done one where the guy's getting crushed by this stone that he's, he's falling upon. He's going to trip over it and it's going to come and it's going to crush him. That is the message of the stone. He's gonna Come and judge those who see and hear and reject the message of salvation. But Paul ends with hope. Here in verse 33. He says, Behold, I'm laying as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the Jews. But here it is. Even the Jews and to the Gentiles, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. You can believe in Jesus. Really, it's my question. Are you believing and trusting in Jesus this morning? The reason why the Jews stumbled is they didn't believe. They, they thought they could work their way to God. And in many ways, um, believing in Jesus would have been a confession to their own inability. It would have been a, um, a blight on their theology. It would, have, it would have hit them that they're wrong about their whole approach to God. No, we, we go to God through the law. Right? Through Moses, we go to God and say, no, 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 you come through Jesus. And it's just so, so big and different. They just could not even fathom that. But Jesus is saying this, I'm not calling the righteous, I'm calling sinners. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And others say that even at this point... The failure of the Jews is the temptation of us all. Especially church-going folk. Because it's easy for us to think how good and righteous we are. Aren't we good? Won't God like us? Because when you believe in Jesus, He changes you. And He transforms you. And there is a measure of righteousness that takes place in the life of every believer. Now, some more than others... But there is this change in the desire to live for God and, and you begin to make better choices in your life. As he works in you, as the spirit of God is there, as, as you're given love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, it's going to have an effect upon your life and you begin to walk in righteousness and sanctification is real. Romans six and seven. And there is this progressive more and more becoming like Jesus in our life and And the temptation, though, is that we can easily slip to think that that's how we get in, because we're so good. You know, I was walking into church here uh, uh, this morning, thinking about what a rhythm this is of life. That every seven days, right, we park out in the parking lot, we come in, we walk in, we talk with our people, we talk with our friends, whatever, and then we go, we're going to go home. And we take every Sunday morning, we just do that every week out of the year, just a rhythm of life, and just thinking about, there's the rhythm of life, and how easy it is to think, I got this God thing down. Because you know how to speak Christianese as well as anybody else. Because you've been around to learn it. And, and how easy it is just to fall into the same trap of the Jews. And this message to the Jews is a message to everybody as a church folk. Is that we can just easily slip into stump, But we need to remember that no, Jesus calls sinners not the righteous. And we need to see that it's not based on our works. It's all based on our faith and our faith alone. Now, now God does a work in our life, and, and praise the Lord, it helps us avoid lots of traps that sin will cause. And this is the temptation of churchgoers, the Jews, but there's a subtle temptation of those without Christ as well. How many are there non-Christians who think that they need to clean up their act before they come to church? Or they need to, to clean up something or they need to stop doing this, right, before they, they do that. And then there is an ad, there is repentance, right? But people, I think, maybe carry repentance too far to say they've got to clean up their life. Their life has to be acceptable to God before they come and believe in Jesus. And Jesus would just say, no, I came to call sinners. It's simply, you know what, like Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector, a, a, a traitor to the whole um, to the whole nation of Israel. And Jesus says. Come follow me. He just dropped it all. And just came and followed him. Zacchaeus. Right. He, he, he just dropped it all. Says. You know what. If I've, if I've wronged anyone. I'll pay him fourfold. He said. Salvation has come to your house today. Before he did anything. He just the a resolve. He just says. Here. Yeah, I'm going to come. I'm going to come dirty. So people should come into our church. People should come dirty. And just say. God. I, I'm nothing. But I trust in Jesus. And then trust that God will. Will work from there. We don't need to clean up our lives first and then come to Jesus. But that's the message of the gospel. The, the gospel takes us just as I am. Right? Most all of you know, Billy Graham passed away this week. Phil gave a wonderful testimony to that. And the hymn that was played when Phil was saved was just as I am. They probably played 40 stanzas of the hymn. I mean, especially if you're going to get down from the third upper deck or wherever you are, right? They're saying this, singing this again and again and again. But... I just thought this would be a a great hymn for us to transition to the Lord's Supper, as we're celebrating here every Sunday in Lent. Um, Just really think about, is this how you come to Jesus? Just as you are. Uh, Because this message, just as I am, in fact, you can take out your hymnal, hymn number 488. Why don't you just take it out and and look at it. We're going to sing it just right as soon as I get done preaching and pray. This is the message over which the Jews stumbled. And this is the message over which many stumble today. God takes us just as we are. Oh, Reformation comes. It comes later, right? Repentance is, is just a turning, but, but, but it's at the moment of turning that the faith comes. It's not weeks and months and years down the repentance line that we're finally saved. We're saved at the moment of repentance But God takes us just as we are. Reformation comes after faith and not before us. God changes us. But consider these words. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just like I am. And that's your blood is bidding me just to come as I am. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just there's an acknowledgement of the power of the blood of Christ to take away all of our sin. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And there, that, that could be applicable to Christian or non-Christian. It just says this life, I'm, I'm, I'm fretting, I'm having difficulty, I'm tossed about, i got worries, I have conflicts. But I'm just coming to Jesus. It's how we need to do. Just draw near to Him. Fourth stanza. And this is the promise. Just as I am, thou wilt receive. Wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And there's based upon the promise, the the promise of the scriptures, right? It says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And maybe you're today saved or not saved. If you're not saved, come to Christ. Kids, maybe you want to talk to your parents, you want to talk to me after service. Billy Graham had a big altar call, we're not going to do that. But you can talk with someone and just say, am I, am I really there? Am I, am I a believer? And if you are a believer, celebrate the supper with us. And if you're not, if you're you're doubt, just let the elements pass. But, but today, I just encourage you to come to, Christ. come to Christ. Don't stumble over this stumbling stone. Don't stumble over the fact that you can't do it at all. But that God has done it all. Really His all. From before the foundation of the world, His all. It's how we need to come. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I, I would pray, God, that we would never stumble over Jesus. We sang earlier, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. God, we can get this vision that how neat it is and how nice it is, and yet it was a bloody cross. It was a cross of torture and cruelty. The worst form of death man could invent. So it's a wonderful cross, not because it was so nice, but because of what was accomplished there on the cross. Father, I would pray also that You would help us to embrace and understand truly, God, that we come just as we are to You. We don't come, God, because we're all fixed up. We come broken, God. We come sinful. We come needing Your help and Your grace. And I pray that we would never lose that God, but realize the preciousness of Jesus Christ and the preciousness of the gospel. God, and how fresh that is with Jesus. God that He alone is the one who can take and remove all of our sin, all of our blots, all of our stains. We simply need to come to Him. And how do we come to Him? Not by walking an aisle. God, not in some regards, not even by praying a prayer, but just really looking to you and praying one prayer that says help. That's so help us to see our sin and to understand our sin in relation to the cross in you. We simply come as confessors to our sin and thank you for Jesus and his blood and his righteousness that has stirred us and changed us. God, and given us a holy passion calling. We are your workmanship. God, doing works that you have created beforehand for us to do and we are engaged in them, but help us never Ever, ever, oh God, to trust them or boast in them. As Paul said, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, so be with us as we celebrate the supper. In Jesus' name, amen.